ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, FP's executive editor for news, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and joining me in the studio is Emily Tamkin, FP's diplomatic reporter. And joining us over Skype is Ann Applebaum, the winner of the 28th annual Lionel Gelber Prize for the book Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine, uh, which tells the gripping story of the famine the Soviet leadership introduced in Ukraine. Ann is also a columnist for The Washington Post, a professor at the London School of Economics, where she runs a research program on disinformation and democracy, and a contributor to the New York Review of Books. Her previous book, Gulag, A History, won the Pulitzer Prize. In Red Famine, Anne explores the impact of Stalin's policy of agricultural collectivization in which millions of peasants were forced off their land and onto collective farms, setting off the most catastrophic famine in European history and leading to the death of millions of people in the Soviet Union between 1931 and 1933. At the heart of Red Famine is a question that has been debated for decades among historians. Did the Soviets deliberately starve Ukraine in the early 1930s, or did their bumbling economic policies inadvertently create a man-made famine? In a tightly woven narrative, Applebaum argues that the Holodomor, as Ukrainians call the famine, was indeed intentional and directed specifically at Ukrainians. Not only was the famine man-made, but it also went hand-in-hand with Joseph Stalin's efforts to quash the Ukrainian nationalist movement. And you argue in the book that, quote, that more than three million of those dead were Ukrainians who perished not because they were accidental victims of bad policy, unquote, but because the Soviet government realized it could use the famine to essentially wipe out the problem of Ukraine's dissidents. What do you think of the records that you looked at? What presented the most sort of damning proof of this for you? I think there are two kinds of evidence. One is the documentary evidence, and the other is actually the memoir evidence. You know, in your introduction, which, you know, which was which was very good, you made you you did make a an argument that many people have made, or a sort of jump, saying that the famine was caused by collectivization. Actually, the famine in Ukraine was not caused by collectivization. Collectivization did lead to food shortages across the Soviet Union. It created chaos and disorganization. And um, the, the book describes in more detail how, why in particular collectivization led to peasants not wanting to plow their, sow their fields and so on. But the famine in Ukraine was actually caused by teams of activists going from house to house and taking people's food. So literally everything. So not just grain, but vegetables and potatoes, and sometimes the family cow and livestock, whatever people had in their homes was confiscated by activists and taken away. After that, roads were blocked so that the peasants were unable to go into towns to get food and they were unable to actually leave the Republic of Ukraine. And the 
the way we know that this happened, there were there there were a series of decisions that Stalin took in the autumn of 1932, in November and December, which were either directed only at Ukraine or mostly at Ukraine. And these were the decisions about blocking the republic, blocking the borders. They were to do with increasing the level of collections, of confiscations from peasants in Ukraine, and of expanding the kinds of confiscations so that it wasn't just grain, as I said, it was other things. And then, and, and also creating a, a series of blacklisted farms and towns and villages, which were not allowed to receive any food or indeed any kinds of supplies at all. Um, and so we know these decisions were taken in November and December. And we then have, in addition to that, a very large memoir sort of record of people describing what happened when these teams came to their houses. And this is, again, this is a description of people taking everything. So this, I'm all, my point is that this was a famine that wasn't caused by chaos or by weather or by things that usually cause famines. It was caused by the confiscation of food. And that, that's, why, that's why I describe it as an artificial famine. So let's back up a bit and talk about it, because your book, of course, builds on, but goes further than you have access to more archival materials than Robert Conquest's book, Harvest of Sorrow. What are sort of the differences, what archival materials were available to you that weren't available to him or other historians previously? Well, when Conquest was writing, when Conquest wrote, he wrote the first really big Western English language book about the famine um, in the 1980s. Um, and at that time, he didn't have any archival material at all. There wasn't any. There was no access to any Soviet material. Um, since then, there have been literally dozens of historians working in archives in Moscow and Kiev and elsewhere who have found you know, immense amounts of material. But as I said, the, the really the key documents are, I would say, the decisions taken in the autumn of 1932, which we did not know about in the 1980s. We would not have known about until we had access to archives because these were secret decisions. And also we now have, for example, the correspondence between the Ukrainian communist leaders and Stalin all throughout 1932, during which they ask him for, they say, you know, people in Ukraine are beginning to starve. Can you send help? And he sort of wavers and thinks maybe he'll send help. And then at a certain point changes his mind and, and doesn't, or sends a little bit, but not enough. Um, and he, and that's accompanied by a kind of tirade that he he releases against Ukraine and how come the Ukrainians are untrustworthy and the Ukrainian Communist Party is untrustworthy. And right after that, we have the decisions on the famine. And then actually, right after that, as you also alluded to in your introduction, there was an assault on the Ukrainian intellectual class, including the Ukrainian Communist Party. I should say, tens of thousands of Ukrainian communists are arrested, plus Ukrainian writers, artists, historians museum curators, teachers, um, specialists in Ukrainian language are, are all arrested in, in, in the aftermath of the famine in 1933 and 1934. So you can see that, and remember the same people who are carrying out the famine are also the people carrying out these arrests. So for them, it's the same policy. May I ask, uh, this is Emily, so your, your first two acclaimed books were on uh, the Gulag and the crushing of Eastern Europe, respectively. How did you, I guess backing up a little more still, how did you decide that this was going to be the topic you wanted to tackle in your third book? I, I simply knew that there was enough material to retell the story. And as I said, to tell it not as a story of chaos, that led, of collectivization, but specifically as a as an assault on Ukraine. I think something that happens often in writing about or in, in reading about um, Soviet history, East European history, Russian history, Ukrainian history today is that we it, it can be sort of seen through the lens of current politics. Did you find in writing this that the current political situation 
informed your view of the past or alternatively that the reception to your book was sort of um, seen through a contemporary political lens? It's a very it's funny because actually when I started the book, um, I think the first conversations I had about it were in 2011 and 2012, when Ukraine was a pretty dead subject. Remember that Yanukovych was the president. Um, it seemed sort of moribund. It wasn't very interesting. Um, and my the original reaction of my publishers was, "Are you sure you want to do this topic? You know, it seems a little you know out of the news. You know, even I had to." persuade people that this was going to be a news story. And then, of course, in 2014, Ukraine became a news, real news story. Um, and then I had, I actually had a moment of thinking, do I have to write this book differently? Um, and I, I decided, in fact, to do, to introduce the book differently. So if you've read it, the introduction uh, makes very clear that before I make any political arguments about, you know, the significance of the famine today or what this tells us about Russia and Ukraine, that, you know, that the history comes first. Um, and I, I'm very clearly, you know, make the point that the book is not being written for the benefit of the Ukrainians or of any particular groups inside Ukraine. You know, it wasn't, it's not a political argument in favor of one, you know, one Ukrainian political party or another. Um, it, you know, it really does try to try to just tell the story. And then, but at the end of the book, I do, um, I do link the book to the present. Of course, almost everywhere people want to talk about the relationship between Ukraine and Russia. And the famine is part of that background. And it is a fact that Ukrainians remember the famine as a crime and the Russians really don't remember it at all. And it is a fact that the, you know, the, the memories of Soviet history are very different in Ukraine and in Russia. You know, the, the famine was, it's not just that it happened and many people died. It's also that there was total silence afterwards. So Stalin repressed all conversation about it and even repressed the census. There was a census taken in 1937 that, among other things, showed too few Ukrainians. And so it was never published. Um, and another one was published two years later that that was falsified. So that you know, Soviet statistics were falsified to hide the famine. Um, pressure was put on Western journalists not to talk about the famine. Um, inside Ukraine, this was a non-topic. The numbers you settle on are sort of the three million or three point nine million figure. What are the numbers that you use for the numbers who are died? How reliable are those? And what are the debates still like going on over the numbers? Well, so there are a lot of people who think my numbers are too low. Actually, um, there's right. a, there's a whole school of Ukrainian historians who don't like the numbers. My the numbers that I used are, to put it simply, the only ones there are. These were put together by demographers, and they went back through. Um, kind of provincial population records, birth and death records, you know, from the late 20s and 30s. Um, and these are the, you know, the, they've published, this is a team of them who were put together to do exactly this. Um, they were funded to, 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 to really, to, to find numbers on the Ukrainian famine. Um, and this is, these are numbers of sort of missing people. So then, you know, if you look at the average birth rate and the average death rate up until that moment, how many Ukrainians should there have been? And that is this is where those numbers come from. There is no such thing as a archival death record, a list of people who died in the famine. And this, this is for a number of reasons. You know, we know that um, death records were altered because they're, they're actually, that's, like, that's even in the archives, people talking about altering the records in, in individual towns. We also know that doctors were would put different 
causes of death onto documents. So if somebody died of starvation, they would put they died of a heart attack or they died of something else. So we know, and we've, and of course, there's the famous falsification of statistics, which we know. I mean, Stalin falsified the statistics, and then had the head of the statistics bureau shot. So it wasn't, it wasn't a, it wasn't a minor falsification. Um, almost everybody who had worked on Soviet statistics in the early 30s was was either fired or in jail or dead. Right. Related to that, I wanted to talk about the way that historians of Russian and Soviet history have approached or in some cases ignored the Ukrainian famine. Why was the, um, the Ukrainian famine not really, before conquest book, it wasn't something that Western historians, or at least so far as I know, really covered? And how has that sort of absence of scholarship sort of continued on through today, do you think? Um, I think there are a number of reasons for this. I mean, one was because, as I said, until recently, it's true there was no proof. Um, I think it's also because the Ukrainian diaspora, who were the people who remembered the famine and who, who, who spoke about it and wrote about it in the, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, when it was a non-topic, um, are, are um, I don't know how to put this in a, in a polite way. They were they were not considered professionals. They were considered ethnic nationalists. They were not liked by the mainstream Anglo-Saxon historical community, who thought they were exaggerating for purposes of political for political purposes. In other words, people who spoke about the famine were always suspected of politicizing their arguments, and I think that you know, that led to a, a feeling, well, this story must not be true. Um, but if you look at other other historians who write about this subject, very often they're writing, well, almost always, actually, they're writing this piece of history from the perspective of Moscow. So when they write about collectivization, they're looking at the arguments that were had inside the, the Soviet Communist Party about collectivization, how Stalin, you know, fought Bukharin about it, you know, what were the, what was the impact inside the, inside the Kremlin? And they're very rarely looking at it from the perspective, for example, of the Ukrainian Communist Party, what was going on in Kiev in 1932 and 33. And that was always considered provincial history. You know, it wasn't part of the mainstream of what people read or studied. You talk in the book about how there's no single document that details a Soviet effort to engineer a man-made famine, but you know, you have plenty of evidence that the Soviets, there was documents that there was a growing famine and plenty of opportunities for the authorities to reverse course, and they didn't. I guess my question is twofold. Would such a document even exist, and are there things that we don't yet have access to that would change or perhaps provide greater proof to the portrait? So I doubt there's a piece of paper in which Stalin says, let's murder Ukrainian press peasants. I, I, don't, I don't believe there would be such a thing, and uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be looking for it. There is one thing which is missing, um, and that is the very low-level provincial orders given to the OGPU, which is what the KGB was then called. Um, so the, the low-level orders given to the secret policemen who led these activist teams who confiscated food in the winter of 1932 and 33, and those don't exist. And whether they ever existed or have been destroyed or whether they were taken to Moscow or, you know, wherever those are, and they should be there and they aren't, um, those may be, those, those could maybe tell a fuller story because those would be the exact orders given to people you know, here's what you do when you get to a village. Here's how you should behave. So you've spoken about how uh, how this is remembered. Um, how is this remembered within the Ukrainian political context? 
So it's interesting. The famine initially in the in the 1990s, the famine did become a kind of rallying point. And thinking back on it, I think the famine is first of all because, as I say, it was this covered up story. It was this piece of history that everybody knew nobody could talk about. And so the moment of being able to talk about it was associated in many people's minds with Ukrainian independence. Um, but also, it's one of the few aspects of Ukrainian history that actually unites the country. It's almost as if Yushchenko wanted to use it as a way to build national identity. And I don't think it is needed anymore, or it really functions that way anymore. And that's partly because the war in Ukraine is so much more important today in, in terms of people's sense of who they are and national identity. And the conflict with Russia has been so traumatic that that's really what people focus on and talk about as a, um, you know, as, as a national rallying point. Uh, and the, the, you know, Ukraine is now much more unified than it ever was before in its history, I think, um, as Ukraine, people identifying as Ukrainians because they're so appalled by the war with Russia. There's some irony in that, that the two sort of major events that have solidified the idea of Ukrainian national identity, the famine and then the current war, were, you know, in part led by Russian or Soviet efforts to sort of um, yeah, I mean, harm the Ukrainians. See, this is because the, the, it's not an accident. I mean, if you think of what, what was the famine, and we didn't quite, you know, lay this out. I lay it in the book, of course. You know, the famine was an attempt to quash... Ukrainianness and the Ukrainian national movement and the Ukrainian peasantry, whom Stalin thought of as the source of um, of a potential Ukrainian national uprising. That's why he, he spoke about them openly, Ukrainian peasantry, as being this potential problem. And he remembered them from 1918-19 when there had been a Ukrainian peasant revolt against the Bolsheviks, and he was always afraid of that happening again. Um, and so, you know, so so yes, these are these are two attempts to assault Ukrainian national identity. And so, yes, the. Ukrainian memory of them, the, the memory of them does somehow solidify Ukrainian national identity. Um, I think that the, the Russian invasion has also, um, for a lot of people, has kind of clarified what's different about Russia and Ukraine, you know, because these are countries that are very similar and they have share a lot of history and they share a lot of culture and there's a ton of intermarriage and you know, they fought together in the Second World War and all that, you know, that's all absolutely true. Um, but Putinism is something that most Ukrainians reject. Um, and that style of government and the um, and that style of, you know, imperialist authoritarianism is something that Ukrainians don't identify with. And so I think the, in a way, yes, Putin has forced Ukrainians to say, what is it about us that's different? You know, why aren't we like that? What are what what do we have here? What's our culture, which is different from Russian culture? Um, and I think that has helped um, unify the country, I mean, for better or for worse. You mentioned how with the fall of the Soviet Union, there's there's now been sort of a reexamination of different histories of different countries that were part of the Soviet Union. Are you planning another book on these or different topics? Or if not, are there sort of histories yet untold or that need to be retold um, from different parts of the former Soviet Union? Myself, um, I am done with Stalin and Stalinism. <laughs> You've been not, living in that world long enough. I'm not going to write about Stalin again, because I don't want to spend any more time reading his writing and thinking about him. Um, that doesn't mean I'm done with that part of the world. And actually, what I'd really like to do is a book, sort of quite different book about the 1990s. Um, but 
and, you know, that's perhaps my next project. But, but no, there, I mean, look, I mean, one of the, the opening of the Soviet archives was really one of the great historical bonanzas of all time. I mean, it was, it made all kinds of things accessible and it made it possible to write about all kinds of things in new ways. I mean, I'm not the only historian who's benefited from it. Really almost everybody who writes about Soviet history has, has been able to reinterpret events um, using new information and better information. And I, you know, I think it's not an accident so many of our really good historians now are historians of Russia and historians of Ukraine. Thanks for joining us today on the ER. And thank you, Emily. Thank you. And Applebaum's book, Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine, is out. Thanks for joining us. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.